Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and we are back with another COVID-related episode. This one is going to be related to COVID and pregnancy. But before I introduce our guest, I want to just say a couple of things. So uh, one of my former medical students, Taylor Purvis, now, of course, Dr. Taylor Purvis, um, wrote a book for kids about COVID. And so if you are out there, you've got kids, and you're trying to figure out how to kind of explain this to them, um, this is a great resource. It's available for free, and I will put the link in the show notes. Totally free uh, opportunity to read a children's book with your kids about COVID if that's something you're interested in. The other thing I want to announce is that uh, there are a lot of online resources becoming available to help residents and other trainees who are interested in trying to keep up their knowledge, who aren't having in-person sessions. One of them that came to my attention is that Anesthesia Toolbox, if your institution subscribes to that, has an online learning session every weekday at 1 o'clock, and it's multi-institutional, so you can actually work along with other uh, trainees at other institutions. So that's something to check out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. As it turns out, even if your institution does not subscribe to Anesthesia Toolbox, the Toolbox is actually offering free subscriptions for a couple of months due to the pandemic to really give the opportunity for remote learning to anybody out there. So if you're interested, check it out, Anesthesia Toolbox. All right, let's jump in. I want to introduce my amazing guest. I have with me Dr. Heather Nixon, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology and the head of obstetric anesthesiology at University of Illinois Hospital and Health Science System in Chicago. She is also on the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia Board of Directors and the vice chair of the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Obstetric Anesthesia. So she knows quite a bit about obstetric anesthesia, and they've been spending a lot of time thinking about COVID and pregnancy, COVID and labor and delivery. And so I want to welcome Heather to the show. Heather, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me, Jed. 
Now, I want to say right up front, and Heather, you and I talked about this offline, that there's really, as in COVID in general, there's just not a lot that we know for sure. We certainly don't have lots of randomized trials. So what we're going to talk about is you'll let us know kind of some of the stuff you guys have been thinking about, some of the stuff we know kind of anecdotally. You'll let us know what we might have some evidence for, if anything, and other things that are just kind of speculation. We want to stress that we're not issuing guidelines, that these are just putting the best stuff we have together. Since we have no choice, we have to treat these patients, and we can't wait until we have trials to show us what to do. So we're going to just do the best we can. But as always, please remember that this stuff is changing day to day. We'll give you some references in the show notes where you can see kind of up-to-date articles and things that get posted, and that may help a little bit. But please assume that if you're listening to this, even if it's just a day or two later, certainly if it's much later, the understanding and and recommendations may have changed. So always check with your local ID folks, infection control folks, and in this case, of course, your local OB experts, both in anesthesia and obstetrics in general, to make sure that these rec- the things that we're, we may recommend here are actually what's being done at your hospital. All right. Heather, anything to add uh, and to, before we jump in? Um, no, I think that that's perfect. I think the resources are, are uh, being updated, at least to the SOAP website, pretty consistently. And so I do think checking back frequently because we just don't know yet and we're getting information as we go as well. Great. And then just tell us, for those who don't know, SOAP is, what does that stand for? So it's the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology. So it's a group of mostly obstetric anesthesiologists. Most, uh, many of us are fellowship trained, and we're really kind of uh, the the leaders in the obstetric anesthesia world. Great. All right. So let's talk about COVID and pregnancy. It, what do we know about how this disease may affect pregnant patients, if at all, differently? Than others, and I'll say that we, and I'm sure many other institutions, have recommended that pregnant providers not take care of known COVID positive patients or patients who are under suspicion for having COVID. Uh, and my understanding, but you'll tell me if I'm wrong, is that this is not because we know that it's bad; it's just because we don't know, and so we figure this is safer this way. But you tell me, what do we know about this uh, area? So you you hit the nail on the head. So here's the good news as far as I have. Um, Both ACOG and the CDC have information on their websites saying that pregnant women um, are not definitively at higher risk of contracting this virus. So um, the idea that they're at high risk of contracting it just because of their pregnancy isn't really evidence-based at this point. What we know from other viruses and URIs is that pregnant women are more likely. So influenza, it is recommended that they get a flu shot because they are more likely to contract it during their pregnancy. But it doesn't seem like this is the same course. We're not seeing overwhelming numbers of pregnant women coming in with this or at least symptomatic enough for us to test them for it. Um, So that's the good news is that we don't really see very much information that fetal or maternal outcomes are being significantly altered by this pandemic. Great. All right. So that's definitely good news. That said, I know you guys are uh, thinking about and, and even recommending some changes be made to normal practice, um, again, maybe just as a precautionary approach. Um, And I will say uh, briefly that I did check in with um, some folks in Italy who have dealt with some of the um, pregnant patients in Bergamo, where it's, you know, they've had an incredible number of cases. And 
they, you know, they don't have great um, specific guidelines to share, though what they did say is that they are trying, obviously, to keep non-COVID pregnant patients separated in space from COVID-positive pregnant patients. And we've done the same here, uh, having a separate ward where we're having pregnant patients with COVID go. Are you guys doing that too? So that's uh, the idea of cohorting. And there is a statement, a joint statement from SOAP and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine that came out as one of the recommendations that we have physical um, location differences for these patients. And that's just not possible in every hospital system. So I'm going to say that although some of these recommendations are coming out, not every hospital is able to do that. So Um, Some institutions are having uh, designated COVID rooms for these patients on L&D because maybe they work in a women's hospital and they don't have other units uh, to funnel them to. Um, Other people, maybe depending on where their ICU is, has, uh, has stationing in the ICU or outside of it. But the real complicated issue about this is whether or not there's an obstetric issue to address. So we really, in our own institution, came up with algorithms of what do we do in case X, Y, and Z, depending on the patient's um, viability. So we define that as 22 and 5 at our institution. Other institutions may define that differently. And whether or not we think that the main complaint is a COVID versus an obstetric issue. So we may have someone who comes in symptomatic um, but doesn't require intubation, who is laboring? Well, she's going to go to our COVID room on our L&D floor versus someone who's symptomatic, requires intubation, and has no current obstetric issues. Um, she might go to our ICU for monitoring, and that creates a lot of chaos on how do we coordinate all the teams to arrive and deliver, and under what circumstances do we deliver and where? Those are big questions that we're trying to answer right now at our own institution that, that are going to be challenging for everyone. Yeah. That sounds absolutely challenging. And so, you know, what about a situation where a a woman at term, you know, comes in in labor and symptomatic with COVID and has to be intubated during her labor? Does she where does she go? So that kind of gets into the uh, we have kind of several algorithms and and it is the patient who comes in and requires ICU care for hemodynamic support, for respiratory support, but ultimately needs more than we can provide on the L&D floor, um, needs a critical care doc who's available. Um, That we're going to be cohorting our patients into one of the ICUs. So at least we're keeping it that they're not going to every single one of the ICUs. Um, And then you have to create a space where you can monitor. So the L&D nurse has to be remote from that. And so they're trying to figure out how to do telemonitoring and not every unit has that. Um, and to minimize the number of providers in the room. So you'll have an ICU nurse in there who's managing the kind of COVID complaints, an ICU doc who's got the overarching idea of how to manage vents or or pressors or other things. And then you have the obstetricians who are weighing in on fetal status. So if she's full term and we would deliver her, we have to think about how we're going to do that. And so for our own institution, Um, We are talking about ICU deliveries in the case of a catastrophe where you have maternal cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that the perimortem cesarean deliveries actually can can spur ROSC. Um, So we know that delivering within five minutes of a maternal cardiac arrest can actually help the maternal status. 
It's not defined yet whether or not delivering the baby actually takes the improves the respiratory status. So there's no indication to deliver these moms just because they have COVID. It's not going to necessarily increase their uh, ability to ventilate. Um, but in the case of a cardiac arrest, we would perform a bedside C-section. Um, other indications would be for a fetal terminal bradycardia. We really can't move mom. And we anticipate that if this mom gets very hypoxic and we're having trouble with ventilation, we would have to do this. Um, that babies may not tolerate it, especially the more acidic she gets. We may see shifts in um, the, the oxygenation of the baby as well because it doesn't necessarily, there's usually a respiratory alkalosis of pregnancy um, that favors fetal oxygenation. We may not see that when the patient starts to get to extremis. Yeah, those are all really important points. Now, let me ask you about the perimortem C-section planning, because one thing that we've really found here when we're thinking about intubating COVID patients is it is you have to plan for a lot of time because to get all appropriate PPE equipment on is not a fast process. And so I'm imagining a situation where you have a cardiac arrest and you've only got five minutes or the goal is to have less than five minutes, it takes more than five minutes to put on your PPE. How, if at all, can we address that? Um, theoretically, probably you would expect that the patients, since we're doing early intubations and we have tight communication with our ICU teams, you know, I would imagine that anyone who's about to cardiac arrest, really from hypoxia or, or the inability to oxygenate them, is probably already intubated by our service at that point. So luckily, we're not going to be necessarily performing an aerosolization procedure. Um, the delivery itself, there's no real evidence that there is a fair amount of virus in the blood or in amniotic fluid. So um, as far as our obstetricians, we're going to limit it to our two most senior people going in to do this. Um, as far as anesthesia, we would just be uh, providing, you know, resuscitative drugs as necessary. Obviously, this patient's not going to need a fair amount of anesthesia if we're in, you know, for coding her actively. But if it's for terminal bradycardia, then we would be probably outside on pumps. We've already kind of moved our pumps to the outsides of the room and fed them through giving the medicines until we could get our PPE in. And, and if we needed to go in the room, we could at that point. So it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, which is why early, early planning and having tight communication so that LND nurse um, and the ICU doctor really need to communicate and do frequent huddles with the obstetric and anesthesia team and say, you know, it's, it's not improving or we're seeing worsening. Our ABGs are getting worse. So, you know, we're concerned um, that we might have to mobilize a team here. And then also getting things there quickly. So you can't rely on ICUs to have everything you need laid out on the outside. So we're carrying our, each team is carrying its own bag, including the NICU on how to resusc resuscitate when we need to, like what are the items that we need in these situations to have our team members safely covered and as well as have the equipment necessary. This is really outside the normal spectrum by all means. Um, I've delivered a few patients in the ICU. It's never fun. Um, but to have to stop at the door for um, protective equipment, it's a whole new world. Yeah, I bet. Um, well, I think you're exactly right that acting early, not waiting until the arrest, but, you know, long before that, feeling like we need to move move on with this, get ready, is, is going to be the best move here. And let me ask you about the baby. Is there any indication or any evidence to suggest that the that if a baby is born to a woman who has COVID, that that baby's outcomes are worse in terms of initial APGAR scores or need for initial resuscitation, or do we just not know? 
We don't know, although it doesn't seem that vertical transmission is as common with this virus as it was with SARS-CoV, you know, in the in the first round. So this is really this is a different beast on some levels. Um, and so even um, the Society for Maternal um, Fetal Medicine is recommending this saying that breastfeeding is not even off the table. Um, and so um, it just, you would pump because the close contact, but ultimately um, they, although we're treating in a resuscitation as if these um, babies are covered in the virus and we're kind of taking the same precautions, we really haven't seen a lot of conversions. There's some case um, reports coming out that haven't seen the baby serial con- or haven't come out with positive tests. Okay. That's great. So let me go back to asking you, what changes to your just general processes have you made uh, in response to COVID on L&D? Sure. So there is, there's a bunch of system changes. So if we start there about what is different about our L&D unit completely, um, and so how would the care of a normal patient be these days? It's, it's actually very different because we're assuming that all of our quote-unquote normal asymptomatic patients could be asymptomatic carriers. Um, so there are some things that we're doing. So number one, uh, we are screening via phone prior to visits and prior to any sections. So if you have an, a, a scheduled 39-week um, cesarean delivery scheduled, you're getting a phone call the night before to see if you have symptoms. Um, and if you do, we have to figure out what uh, we have to do next. We need to test the patient before they come in. But we're trying to limit the exposure on the L&D unit to actively symptomatic patients. Um, so the triage is very different. Our waiting area is different. Um, so in our OBER, there's no more, longer a waiting area. People are funneled directly into rooms. So that has changed. Um, there was some questions about whether or not in the prenatal care, patients who should get low-dose aspirin um, should receive that to for preeclampsia prevention. Um, and ACOG has come out and said, yes, we do think we can continue that because they were concerned that this might um, there was some concern with NSAIDs worsening the disease, but they have said that to continue that. Um, for labor and delivery, we're really, we're limiting visitors. We used to allow up to three visitors, and now we're allowing one. Some institutions have gone to policies where they allow no visitors. Um, this is really controversial. It's causing a lot of stir. Mm-hmm. Um, I can completely understand how heartbreaking and scary that is to a mom who was going to have this experience, and this is one of the most important parts of her life, and now can't have a support person there. Um, if we really see the disease progress in a way that um, units are affected globally um, and we're trying to limit traffic, that's a possibility. So I think every unit is trying to figure that out right now of how many they'll allow on and what they're doing with those visitors. So even our visitors aren't allowed to leave the room anymore. They used to be able to go down to the cafeteria, go and have a smoke. Once you're there now, you're in the room and you can order food services in, other things like that. So we're trying to limit traffic. So that's completely different. It's it's very um, empty on the L&D floor in the hallways. Yeah. Um, we're doing social distancing with our interview. So the first thing I'll say to a patient, I come in with a mask on for every patient, not an N95 but a regular mask, and I'm six feet away. This is very different than our normal process. Normally, we're right next to them, we're talking to them, we're engaged, and the first thing I say is, for your safety and mine and the staff, we're going to go ahead and social distance. So all of my interviews with you will be from six feet with a mask on, and I want you to understand it's for your safety. Um, And they understand that once you explain it, but it's a very awkward situation for the patients and the providers. Um, It's it's been a challenging adjustment to make. Yeah, I can see Uh, how that would be challenging. And what about the physical exam? I mean, obviously, at some point, you may want to listen to heart lungs. So that you're, how are you approaching that? 
Right. So some people, what they're doing is they're doing the initial interview, um, kind of doing a malapani exam from a little bit farther away. Um, and then only at the time of epidural placement are they actually doing the heart and lung exams. Some institutions are doing it all at once and they'll put gowns on. We have disposable stethoscopes if we need to. Or some providers um, are choosing not to do that exam if there's nothing in the history to warrant it to kind of, again, uh, create this sort of distance between you. Um, the other part about that is you might decide, uh, rather, when we do sensory checks, one of the big goals here is to make sure once we place an epidural, it absolutely works. So we need to follow up on these epidurals and check them every couple hours to make sure that they're still working and they're functional and that we could convert them for an emergency if we needed to so we don't have to intubate anyone. Um, but the problem with that is then we're increasing the number of times we're in the room and in our interactions with patients. So what we've kind of started thinking about is how do we teach patients to do their own sensory exam if we give them a, a, a glove full of ice, can they march up and tell us where they feel it mm. um, rather than us being close? Um, so we're, we're thinking of innovative ways to kind of keep our distances. Um, we're putting more senior people on the floor. So people who are more comfortable with OB or our senior residents, we're not having any junior rotations up there at all right now. Um, other things is that we were about to roll out nitrous oxide for labor analgesia. And um, basically, because we don't know exactly how those machines are cleaned and, and the risk of transmission, um, and this comes from both SOAP and ACOG have actually mentioned this too, is that we may consider we're not going to rule it out right now, but other institutions may decide to hold it for the risk of transmission from patient to patient. Um, if we're doing neuraxial and we're close and we're behind the patient, we probably don't have a risk of droplet um, exposure. So if you have an asymptomatic patient and you're behind them, uh, I would probably wear a regular mask because we're trying to conserve our N95s. Um, but the nurse is usually right in front of the patient. So some institutions are moving towards lateral epidural placement so the nurse can actually move away from the bed and not have to support the patient. So that's a big change as well. If I do have a, a patient who I think is either symptomatic or at risk or is um, her, their test is po uh, positive or pending, then I'm going to wear an N95 while I place an epidural as well. Um, and then there's some questions about whether or not, because COVID works through the angiotensin receptors, whether or not there's an exaggerated hypotension. Now, this is anecdotal. Please understand that I've heard this from several of my colleagues, and it's kind of being chatted about, but it's not in any of the you know, kind of recommendations or, or um, societal websites right now. So personally, I'm reducing my intrathecal doses for CSEs. Um, so typically I give two milligrams of epivacaine plus 15 mics of fentanyl. I've gone down to 1.5 just to prevent any sort of exaggerated hypotension that would force my hand into kind of an urgent situation as well. Mm. Interesting. Um, so the idea being that if the virus is blocking ACE receptors, just like an, you know, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor drug that's used for an antihypertensive, it may be leading to a similar response to a sympathectomy that you see on patients who have taken an ACE inhibitor. Right. And I would tell you that we're seeing that more, or the people, the colleagues that I'm talking to are seeing that more in the operating room than in the labor room. But why not adjust your doses? I mean, the ED95 is 1.75 milligrams. If I give a test dose after it, I'm going to get my patients comfortable. So why not use a reduced dose? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, interesting. And then only taking what you need in the room. So our cabinets used to be stocked with things. You'd open it up, you take everything out. We're assuming every patient is symptomatic now. So anything we open in that room or expose potentially has the virus on it. So we're taking kits specifically every time we go in, which is a big change in our um, 
in our system as well. And then tubal ligations are another area that ACOG actually has on their website. Um, tubal ligations are, are um, ACOG has always said that they were urgent procedures, that they should not be delayed because the risk that patients would get pregnant if they didn't receive their um, postpartum tubal was very, very high. So there's been evidence that's shown that. But now they're saying unless there is some compelling reason or this is a very, very high-risk patient, that alternate um, sterilization procedures should be performed after vaginal deliveries. If you're doing a cesarean delivery, you can do the tubal at the same time. But if they're having a vaginal delivery, we're trying not to take them to the operating room um, on the next day or following their delivery. And then we're trying to, this is all part of fast tracking them. So they're recommending that patients who have uncomplicated vaginal deliveries would be uh, discharged as early as post-op day one which again is a big change. So ERIS protocols, anything we can get to get our patients mobilized and out of the hospital is ideal. Yeah. And that's just our normal patient. Right, right, right. If you you take them to C-section, there are some things that we kind of have altered as well. Um, So you're going to choose your anesthetic as normal, all right? Um, So whatever is the most appropriate anesthesia for your patient for cesarean delivery is what you should choose. And so we're still going to um, prefer gonna, neuraxial if we, if we can, if there's not a contraindication. That, absolutely. That's what we always prefer. But right. if there's a, some reason that we should not do neuraxial, we shouldn't force it just because. Right. Um, so we're not, for example, going to take a patient with platelets of 20 and do neuraxial because they have COVID. Correct. Correct. Um, one of the things we're doing is we're limiting the number of people in the OR and we're social distancing in the OR. So I have my resident swing the EMR all the way to the other side of the room and stand in the corner. And again, I used to be on hovering on top of the bed, you know, over the head of the bed and our patients, we don't do that any longer. We tell them we're going to social distance. So I've encouraged my residents to use distal ports on IVs, bring the IV pole over to them and they can push their medicines through there. Anything that's critical and they need to be closer or that they would need to give large volumes of, um, maybe they need to be a little bit closer. But as much as they can distance themselves from the patient, um, that's great. Um, we are also um, um, we've enforced now that our visitors wear gloves as well as tight-fitting masks and hats. Um, so we are still allowing visitors in the operating room, so one support person um, per patient. Um, and uh, but we're kind of changing the way that they have our gown and gloves, so to say. And then finally, no nasal cannula O2 supplementation. Um, during C-sections, there's really no need for it. And that used to be part of our just, you throw a nasal cannula on, you put two liters on. Uh, we just don't want to aerosolize anything in their nasal pharynx. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no reason to have that in most cases. And if you need to elevate, we're recommending that you move to something that's got a tighter seal with a mask. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I love just in general not giving supplemental oxygen to people who aren't hypoxemic. Uh, and so this is even another reason uh, to avoid it. Yeah. Um, so then we move into kind of our symptomatic, either our persons of uh, under investigation or our COVID positives, depending on where they are in their hospitalization. And these are the ones that are probably the most challenging because you know that your normal patients are going to go to L&D. You know that your really sick ones are going to go to the ICU. But where do you put everybody else? And so this is really where you have to think about, um, do you need to have a COVID antepartum unit? Do you need to have, how many rooms do you need to have on L&D that are COVID um, ready? How many, um, and are they negative pressure? Most L&Ds don't actually have negative pressure rooms. So that's one of the big problems that we have here. Um, And then do they go to the COVID step-down unit? Um, So somewhere outside of the MICU for patients who are asymptomatic or being watched. So you have to think about, 
what are your human resources? What are your L&D nurses capable of? What are your ICU nurses capable of? And what do you expect from this patient? So that really gets into the full assessment of both uh, COVID status as well as their um, as well as their obstetric status. Right. So uh, are they viable or not? And if they're not viable, we actually our our plan is to send them to the COVID units um, of whatever delineation they need of that based on their symptoms. Um, if they are viable, then we have to consider: Do we put them in our antepartum floor where they're closer to the operating room if we needed to deliver? Um, do we put them on L&D? Like, are they contracting? Are they bleeding? Um, is there something wrong with a fetal heart rate tracing where we need to keep them close to the operating room? Um, and then for some of those patients, too, should they uh, require delivery, are you going to do that on your L&D unit or are you going to do that in the main OR? So now in our main OR, we have covid uh, designated operating rooms. And so that's our preferred. If we have anyone coming in for their scheduled section who's covid positive, um, they will go to those areas and not to the L&D floor. So you really need to map this out about what, where they're going and why they're going there. And they may have to change between units depending on what develops during their hospital course. Yeah. But it's really kind of a, a very big mental challenge to have all these services together, um, kind of trying to plan this out and then to make sure that all your services can get to those areas. So like little things that really need to have trial runs um, are things like our neonatologists actually don't have access to our ORs. So if we brought a patient down to the main OR, they couldn't get in unless someone's at the door to let them in. So that's problematic, right? Um, and as far as we have to do an urgent delivery. Right. So you have to map these things out. And I, I encourage people to simulate, walk through, or take a patient who's not uh, COVID positive and treat them as if they are. Who's going to be in the room? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? What equipment do you really need? What's the minimum that you can get away with? And map that out because it's really important. I love that idea of doing this in a simulated fashion to to just go through the kinks and figure out who doesn't have access, like you said, to the OR, or who doesn't know where the ORs are, right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that might come up that you wouldn't imagine. You don't want the first time to be when you're having an urgent C-section you're taking to the OR. Right. And the other part that I haven't mentioned yet that's really important is that although the risk of vertical transmission has not really been defined as being high um, and we don't really know what it is right now, we think it's relatively low, uh, we are still resuscitating these, pa these babies outside of the room. So what will happen, unlike normal cesarean deliveries where we hand the, the baby over to the neonatologist, we're now handing the baby outside the door to a separate area. So you need to map out where are they going to resuscitate and how are they going to protect themselves and how are they exposing the rest of the unit. So in, in ideal situations, you would perform the C-section in one operating room and resuscitate in the adjacent operating room. So you need to map that out for your own. And do you, can you afford to have those two operating rooms tied up? Right. Um, on right. our, our L&D floor, we only have two ORs. So if we have a COVID patient that we're delivering there, we really have now said we have to take another laboring patient to another floor for a delivery. So, you know, it, it really influences the decisions you're going to make about where to do these procedures. Yeah, absolutely. Are you thinking, you know, when I think about patients in general, uh, after a general anesthetic, you're moving toward extubation. Obviously, you worry about it, that extubation period. You take, you un unhook the tube. They may cough, gag. And in pregnant patients, they tend to have a lot of nausea. Also, are, we, are you doing anything different with anti-emetics to try to prevent the uh, nausea and vomiting that might lead to retching or coughing or, you know, aerosolization of virus. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, um, uh, there is um, 
they're, they're social distancing, but then there's also kind of preventing the patient from coughing and retching and other things like that. So if you do have a COVID positive patient who you're in the operating room with, there's a couple things. Number one, again, this is the scenario where people have seen exaggerated responses to neuraxial. So you may consider, and this is not a recommendation, this is my kind of the way that I'm thinking about it, so I want to be very clear on that. Um, you know, I've thought about it, should I have the time knowing that other people are, see- are seeing this exaggerated hypotension, which is going to cause a patient to retch um, and throw up and s- spread secretions everywhere. Uh, one of the things I'm doing is I'm either going to do a dural puncture epidural and dose it up a little bit more slowly or a low dose CSE with something like 7.5 milligrams where I don't expect to see a full surgical level but I can then slowly control it a little bit more with phenylephrine infusions. So phenylephrine infusions, although um, the evidence doesn't necessarily support that the blood pressure control is much, much tighter than when you give boluses, there is a fair amount of evidence that patients don't have as much nausea and vomiting interoperatively, which Mm. could be really important in this patient population. And then the use of dual antiemetics, There were some questions about should we be giving uh, dexamethasone as one of our antiemetics, given the fact that this is an infectious uh, disease. I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that, but people are taking pause with it. So my uh, my personal protocol would be to give metoclopramide up first to kind of empty their um, their. stomach, and then also then to give uh, Zofran early, which I normally give at the end of the case. Now I'm giving it up front as well. Um, So these are kind of some of the alterations that we're also seeing happen in the operating room as well. You have to think about how to minimize the amount of visceral stimulation. So I will be asking my OBs to keep the uterus internalized because the more you externalize it, the more visceral stimulation they get. And they often feel like they have to throw up. Um, They start retching. Um, So... Um, anything you can do to make it as smooth as possible with the most senior people is ideal. Yeah, that sounds like a great approach. What about, we know in non-pregnant patients that in general, if they develop severe ARDS, just in general, no matter what the cause is, proning can be very helpful. Certainly we've seen from at least anecdotal information coming out of China and Italy that early proning can be very effective in these COVID patients, specifically when they have respiratory failure. Can you prone a pregnant patient? Is that being talked about? How would you do that? (laughs) So you actually can. Um, You probably can't do it for long periods of time. Um, You can prone a patient. So you would use shoulder rolls and hip rolls and make sure that the stomach was uh, dangling. It depends on how... Um, how far along in their gestation they are and their body habitus. So you have to pad them appropriately. Um, There were a couple of small studies that looked at um, patient comfort, blood flow, and other things in various positions. Um, And then another study that looked at proning preeclamptic patients. And so I can tell you what I know from those. And I don't know that we can extrapolate in a patient who is, you know, ARDS and is intubated and other things like that. We're really in, you know, new territory. But Uh, We know that um, patients will have better blood flow who are pregnant when they are prone as long as their uh, abdomen is free. If you think about it, we do left uterine displacement in order to get the uterus off the blood vessels. Well, you turn them on their stomach, and pretty much as long as you're suspending them, you're getting the uterus off the the blood vessels. Right. Um, So in preeclamptics, when we did this, compared to norms, they had um, some uh, lowering of their systolic blood pressures actually secondary to this. So there was some uh, 
vascular benefit to for them uh, in that. And then um, patients who um, were turn prone relative to semi-fowlers and left uterine displacement, looking at blood pressures, there was no change. Now, these were awake patients, not intubated, not critically ill. I want to kind of emphasize that. I'm just using data that already exists. But we do have patients who have developed ARDS from H1N1, other things like that in the past, um, and they've been able to be successfully proned. The big problem with proning is that, you know, uh, and, it, and the fetal monitoring actually is not necessarily difficult because the baby kind of comes to the front of the abdomen. You can strap the strap on, the nurse can get her hand underneath usually. So you probably can do fetal monitoring in that position as well. Um, but the big problem is, is if the baby gets in trouble, then how are you going to turn the mom quickly if you need to do that? that cesarean delivery. Right. Um, and so what is your plan there? How are you going to do it? Do you have a second bed? Do you roll her 180? And how many people do you need to do that quickly? Um, so it can be very challenging, to say the least. I imagine. All right. Well, I suppose those will be made on a case-by-case basis, those decisions as to whether to try that, and if so, how, and I'm sure also depend greatly on the comfort level of the providers. Right. Um. One more thing that I wanted to mention about proactive behaviors is I think that this is really the area that we're going to make the most impact. Um, the tight communication, the frequent huddles, the knowing where people are and uh, knowing what our plan is about them is that, you know, there's been the idea of having almost like a separate team should the demand come up high enough in some of the, you know, the higher acuity centers that would handle these patients, would have plans for each one, and their job would be to kind of round on these patients and be able to interact if they needed to. Um, with that, we need to have discussions with our obstetricians. And I think they're hearing us because um, the ACOG and the MFM, uh, SFMFM Society both kind of have acknowledged that this is maybe a patient who um, we can't necessarily crash in the typical way. So general is not as easy. When Once you describe to them what your donning and doffing process and how you enter the room, um, they begin to understand that general anesthesia is not... Um, without significant delay relative to neuraxial at that point, right? The idea is always like, oh, general's faster, general's faster. It may not be. Um, And so the idea of having constant communication about whose strip doesn't look good, um, who's looking like their clinical course is worsening and moving to an OR downstairs and doing it a little more controlled is really something that we're going to have to have a lot of discussions by. And and it's going to be a case by case because, again, there's no indication for cesarean delivery just because someone is COVID or intubated. That is not an indication. But we may find reasons why it makes the most sense to do it in a more controlled fashion, depending on the resources and the patient themselves. Um, So that part of the proactive um, uh, planning is really very important as well. Awesome. Well, Heather, we've covered a lot of great stuff. Anything we didn't cover that you think we should before we finish? Um. I think I think we've we've covered most things. I think though that if you do have a um, laboring patient who is on um, who is COVID positive and symptomatic, uh, you need to think about a couple things. You need to think that of having a continuous pulse ox, which is not part of our normal setup, mm. um, and you need to have a very trite. Um, very tight triggers on what you think means that the patient is symptomatically decompensating. Because one of the concerns about having one of these COVID patients on LND is that the LND nurses are not necessarily critically care trained. And so, nor are they COVID trained, so to say. So, 
they may not recognize when somebody has an increased oxygen requirement or when things are kind of moving in the wrong direction where we should already be thinking about early intubations. So you want to have triggers in place of what is concerning, when do we get called, like um, like the mater- maternal early warning system does that already, but again, the triggers for this are going to be very different. So you have to think about who your provider is in the room who's charged with really looking at the whole picture and taking in all the data and kind of activating people as they need to be activated. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, I think the thing you emphasized before about communication is just so key. Uh, you know, really, really thinking ahead, communicating well. We talked, uh, when I talked to Dr. Pustavoitau about how to think about intubating these patients, we talked about how you ha- you can't wait until they are crashing and then try to intubate them. You'd need to have a very early warning, um, be in discussion with the medicine bedside team and the anesthesia intubating team, and same here, right? It's all about keeping an eye out, making sure people are aware of what they need to know, communicating so they can catch anything before it happens and acting early. And just one last thought. I know you covered this on your previous um, podcast about some of the lab abnormalities that you might see, but we have to remember that thrombocytopenia is part of what the 30% of our patients will present uh, with that with COVID. So I think that we need to be really careful when we're really pushing neuraxial, and that's what we want to do, that we actually know our numbers and that we have recent labs. Great. Yeah, that seems like a really important thing to keep in mind, too, because someone with no history of any kind of coagulopathy you know, who has COVID may, may have a COVID induced uh, issue. Right. All right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I think this will be really useful for folks and I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Jed. All right. That was great. Heather has a lot of knowledge and is really involved with uh, the ongoing attempts to try to figure out what the right thing to do for these patients is. Let us know what you think, or if you have other approaches that you're taking that you want to add, go to the website, ACRAC.com. Leave a comment that others can learn from. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we are at ACRAC Podcast. There's also a Facebook group, and you can join that to get involved. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It'll help others find the show. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, you can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. A huge thank you, as always, to Kimi Akash Cooley, our intern, to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who make the show notes for some of the episodes, and to Dr. Dennis Quo, who wrote the original ACRAC music. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Heather Nixon, I'm Jed Walpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.